Hey, it's Shane here. Throughout the majority of my career, I spent thousands of hours on my technique to try to be as close to perfect as I could be. But the one thing I didn't work on was my mental skills. On the exact mindset I needed every ball to be able to access all of my technical skills that I worked so hard to develop. Well, I've recently released my book, Winning the Inner Battle, which has all of the information that you will ever need to deeply understand how you can create the correct mindset for you so that you can bring the best version of yourself every time you step out into the middle. Go to shamewatson.au to purchase a copy of Winning the Inner Battle now. It is available in paperback, ebook, or audiobook versions. Well, it's now time for your episode of Lessons Learned with the Greats. Enjoy. Before I went out to bowl, any day for England, I'd be fully kitted up with my cap on and before, with, with the rest of the team just like trotting out. I'd still be in the bathroom, just looking at myself in the mirror, looking at myself with the lions on my chest and on my hat. That's what I wanted as a kid, and now I'm doing it. Look at yourself. Don't take this for granted. You're living your dream. You're playing for England. And I'd stand there looking at myself till it made me smile from ear to ear, and then I'd walk out and I'd try and love every day because that's, that's what we were doing. We're living the dream, weren't we? Hello, everyone, and welcome to Lessons Learned with the Greats. I'm Shane Watson, and today we are joined by one of the true characters of the game. And make no mistake, this guy developed his craft so well that he became one of the world's leading bowlers during his time at the highest level. Graham Swan, thank you so much for taking the time to be on my show. My pleasure, mate. How are you doing? I am very well. Even better for talking to you, mate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I really feel for it. I was sitting there, I can see through the slit in your curtain, bright sunshine, beautiful morning in Sydney, New South Wales. It's minus two here. I'm sat with my dog for warmth on my couch. <laughs> <laughs> minus two. Okay. Yeah, it's horrific, mate. You have to have the heaters cranked up, yeah. That's a... <laughs> you know, you know the, the Army Army, they always say you will live in a, in a penal colony. I mean, you live in a bloody sunshine wonderland, basically, and we're all taking the mick out of Australia. I can't understand. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's all right. That's that's the thing that always goes through always goes through my mind when the, the Barmy Army singing that out. It's like, well, we've got beaches, <laughs> yeah. we've got sunshine. <laughs> you shipped you, you guys shipped us out to the to a paradise. <laughs> <laughs> I wish my granddad had stole some biscuits back in the day. Sometimes I really do. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. Um, I always loved playing against Swanee. Um, you were a serious competitor, never, ever giving an inch across all formats of the game. Um, the skill that you developed as a conventional off-spinner has set the benchmark so high that very few will ever get to. In your 60 test matches that you played, you took an incredible 255 wickets at an average of just under 30, which puts you second on the highest wicket takers list um, for an English spinner behind Derek Underwood. During your five-year stint at test level, your wicket-taking was that prolific that you were the highest wicket-taker in the world through that period above the likes of Jimmy Anderson, Stuart Broad, and the great Dale Stain. A couple other stats to go with this. Um, in your 79 one-day internationals that you played, you took 104 wickets at a seriously good average of just under 28. And to put a little cherry on top there, in your 39 T20 internationals, that, that you played, you took 51 wickets at an incredible average of 16.84 with an incredibly low runs per over, a 6.36. Like, honestly, Swanee, they are incredible, incredible numbers. 
When when you Thanks, hear mate. when you when you hear those numbers, what what actually what does that make you think? I tell you what, what it makes me think is much like you, I bet when you look back on your career, I can hardly believe that was me. I can hardly believe it actually it actually happened to me because I had a bit of a checkered early start to international cricket. I played a one day international when I was twenty under Nasser Hussein as captain in South Africa. I was actually removed from the bowling attack and replaced by our other spinner, Graham Hick. That's how well it went. Mm. So it's like, <laughs> and I had eight years um, with Duncan Fletcher as the coach who didn't like characters and he didn't want to pick me. By the time I played, I honestly thought, you know what? I might only play two or three games. I might as well just enjoy it and see what happens. And I went on a roller coaster. I had five years of living the dream of just forever traveling the world, five-star hotels, laughing and joking with my mates, playing Call of Duty on the Xbox, going out and bowling, doing well, and then just laughing at myself in the mirror. I'd go back to my room sometimes and just think, this is crazy. How is this happening? I mean, this is just brilliant. You've won the lottery, so just keep enjoying it. So I was, I was never into stats. And Alistair Cook always used to, I used to, sat next to him all the time. He always used to get, everyone knows their stats, everyone knows their stats. I honestly didn't know my stats. The only one I wanted, the only box I wanted to tick was a fifer at Lords and a hundred in Test cricket. And I got one. I got a couple of fifers at Lords, but I never got the hundred in Test cricket. If I could go back and change anything, I'd give a hundred wickets away for that one hundred. <laughs> yeah, it's a, bit, it's a bit like that, isn't it? But um, yeah, look, it's an incredible perspective that you've got because that's obviously when when you have that freedom, when you go, you know what well, I'm just going to make this the most of this opportunity, have fun with it. It's amazing, actually, yeah. this, you know, the heights that you actually can soar. But, um, yeah, it's it's, inc- it's incredible to think what you achieve. And what you said there around, like, looking back, like, I actually think that as well. It's it's amazing you th- <laughs> that you think that um, because, like, now I've you know, played international cricket for a long time, five years or so. And, again, I think the exact same thing. You look at the guys playing on TV, the yeah. Aussie guys playing, you think, was that actually me? That it, was, I, was I doing no. that? Like doing that consistently, it's hard to it's hard to imagine. It's really strange as well because I went straight into commentary and I was commentating on the England team who I'd been playing with not long, you know, before. And straight away, because you're an outsider, you're not part of the group anymore, and you know what it's like when you're in a team. Even your mates, you're not within uh, that bubble. So I used to find like the two days before a test match were my favourite days, where you do your training. You go back to the change room, and I'm thinking of Lord. I always think of Lords when I do this, and you'd have that amazing Lords lunch in your casual kit. There'd be no pressure whatsoever. You go for coffee in London. You might go to, you know, down Oxford Street or something. It was just, and you're with your mates. You're living the dream, and you're getting paid good money for it. And you're like, this is amazing. But as soon as you're in the commentary, you're not with them anymore, and there you can see them all doing that. You don't want to step on their toes. You don't want to go and sort of join in and be the hanger on her because there'll be a new lad who's come in who doesn't know you and you feel awkward and you feel so out of it straight away and it was I'm not having to go at the commentary team here but they weren't my mates they weren't my <laughs> the guys I've grown up with there was Phil Tufnell who's a great laugh but then most of the guys are in their mid-60s and you know I don't really want to go and look around the tape modern this afternoon <laughs> you know, I'd rather go and have a hamburger <laughs> but, yeah. and play golf but it was really weird that how quickly I understand why people have breakdowns and really miss the game so much because I because when I finished it wasn't because I wanted to finish it's because I just couldn't feel my arm anymore so I couldn't go into IPL 
I couldn't go into county cricket. I didn't have that change room left anymore. It was just straight, right, you're with your family now, you're with your little kids, and you realise your language is horrific because you're telling dirty jokes and you've got no one to laugh, and you're like, you feel completely lost. It was very strange. Mm. But I, I promised myself straight away, I'm not going to dwell on it. I'm not going to feel miserable. I'm just going to roll with the punches, see what happens and enjoy it. And knowing full well that nothing I ever do will ever reach the highest of what I've done. So just accept that and move on. But it's hard. Yeah, it's a great perspective to have, mate. Um, obviously, to, to, do what you, to do what you did and then to have that perspective in that transition phase as well. Gosh, that's something I'm, I'm taking, <laughs> working through right now as well now that everything's totally done. <laughs> I'll tell you what I did find, though. The most amazing thing for me was the first day I ever did commentary. It was at the Oval. And as I walked through the gates, um, it's at the other side of the ground anyway, but there was a, the feeling... Uh, in my body was completely different to anything I'd ever known as a player. It was, I didn't have a care in the world. There was no pressure. And I realised at the time that it was, I was going to talk about the game. I was going to sit in there, talk for 20 minute periods. And it's the easiest job in the world. It really is a piece of cake. Somebody never stops talking. I was born to do that. And I realised that for years I'd convinced myself that I didn't feel any pressure when I played. Whatever happened, happened. I just bowled and, you know, I got into the game and if I fought, what will be will be. But I realised I'd bullshitted myself for years to hide the pressure, to hide the anxiety, whatever. I pretended it didn't affect me whatsoever. And that was the day I realised after my career that I'd managed to do that to myself. So at that point, I remember thinking, you've done really well there because a year before I'd have convinced, I'd have said, no, shut up, I'm not bothered. I don't care because it's day five and I've got to win the game. That's my job. I, I love that. Yeah, I want to be man of the match. But really, deep down, I was going, oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God. Finding any way I could to just get rid of that pressure. And that was how I dealt with it. So it's amazing how, how strong your mind can be when, when you need it to be. Gosh, you've articulated that incredibly well because that's the first thing that I, as soon as I re- stopped playing for in, uh, international cricket, there was this massive load and weight that was just like lifted off my shoulders that I had no idea was there. Yeah. And it's, and it's all to do with that, that um, expectation, that pressure, whatever it is from the first time that I was in and around the Aussie team. And that for me, it would start when I was 20, yeah. like especially in one day cricket, like you just get, you get used to having to deal with the, the whether it's a scrutiny, whether it's the the pressure, whatever it is. And as you said, this, the, the, the strength of your mind, you just, you don't realize that you're actually absorbing it until, yeah. until it's gone. And then you realize that, wow, I, I just, you just, you, well, you have to get on with it. I love to, I love doing what I do and I've got to absorb it. Um, but you articulated that so well. It's so true. To do with international cricket as well, because it, it almost feels like you're, you're letting down. If you have a bad day, if you focus on that, if I do badly now, I'm letting down my mates who play cricket, the people I go to school with, the people I've grown up with, my mum and dad who are in the stand, my whole country, the press and everything. I don't want to be the pariah. I don't want to be like letting everyone down. Club cricket and like I, I imagine franchise cricket is different in many ways, even though it's still important, it's still massive. It's not the team that you grew up desperate to play for as a kid. As a seven-year-old in the garden playing cricket with my brother, he used to be England. I always had to be Australia. And so it was, that was all you wanted to play for your country against the Aussies and all of a sudden you're doing it. And I, honestly, for all the time I play, I never felt nervous before games. I never felt 
I was I, I was convinced myself that it's what whatever will be will be. Yeah, you know, it's not worth worrying about. But looking back, I remember at the Oval in uh, 2009 when we'd set you 520 to win. Yeah, <laughs> and, and and Fred ran out punter when you were 200 for two. I generally kept looking at the board, thinking we're going to lose this. We're going to lose this. They only need 520. <laughs> Looking back, that is crazy. But at the time, I was going, oh, my God. Oh, my God, they're almost home and dry here. They only need another 342 runs. <laughs> I mean, they're the sort of things that go on your head. It's just absolutely crazy. Yep. Exactly, and that's a, the mental skills we'll, we'll dig into a little bit more because it's the, the power of the mind actually just means that you can – well, you can shut things out to give yourself the best yeah. chance of, to being at your best. Okay, before we dive into in, into things a little bit uh, deeper, I just want to mention one highlight um, of your career that really stands out to me the most, um, and it was your five for ninety one against us in Adelaide during that very memorable Ashes series win in twenty ten eleven. Well, very memorable for both of us for different reasons. Yes. <laughs> it was the first time we lost lost at home for a long time. Anyway, I remember facing you in that second innings of that test match and you were seriously on just getting into yeah. that rough every single ball. Um, what do you remember about that time? Well, I just remember that because it came off the back of Brisbane where I'd hated bowling at Brisbane for some reason. I'd never played there before and I couldn't get the run-ups quite sandy and I mm. felt in no rhythm whatsoever. And Huss took me down. He kept coming down the wicket and hit me over my head. And I hated people coming down the wicket to me. I prided myself on spotting them, but I couldn't spot him coming. Mm. So going into Adelaide, I was determined. I'd, I'd never practised like I had before that game. And we had the dream start. We got, you know, the run out. Jonathan Trott with a direct hit run out. I mean, that is, if ever something is written in the stars, that never happened. Yeah, that was, yeah. I, I singed Simon, I singed Simon Kadic. He always reminds me of that too. <laughs> oh, but, but that will never yeah. happen again in world cricket. I mean, Trotty was more surprised than anyone else. And then Punter got nicked off first ball. Um, Clark was out third over or whatever. We bowled Australia on day one at Adelaide on a feather bed. And we couldn't believe it. It was like, well, and then I think Kev got a big hundred and mm. Alistair Cook probably got runs. He got runs every time he batted. And when we went out to bowl, all I remember is I didn't expect any help the whole series from the pitch mm. in Australia. But because Dougie Bollinger had played mm-hmm. in that Adelaide Test match and he had left, I'd never played against Dougie before, he had left the biggest omelette on, outside the off stump. It was honestly, it was like a crater of the moon, just outside off stump, the perfect length. And I could bowl quickly into it. Some balls would spin, some balls would go straight on. And I just thought, and you had a few left-handers in the team as well, who I love bowling at, like Northy. And I just thought, this is my day. I, I'm, I'm just going to clean up. Mm. And sometimes, you know, when you get that feeling in your head that this is going to go my way. And I know I didn't get you out because I only ever got you out once. That was caught long on at the Oval. <laughs> when I thought it was going to go for stick. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I can't remember getting you out ever apart from that. Uh, probably in one day cricket. Most underrated player spin I knew was Shane Watson because I could never get you out. <laughs> but yeah, but that day, and I just, I, we won the game. I bowled Siddle through the gate. Again, landed it in that big patch of going through. And that was one of those moments thinking, I've just got Pfeiffer in an Adelaide test match when we've, sent, we've won the task, we've lost the task and won the game. And, and it pissed it down with rain, not long afterwards as well. And I just remember, like we were, 
that sort of epitomised the team spirit we had at the time because we had the sprinkler dance and all stuff like that. It was all down to, like, we just couldn't believe our luck. We couldn't believe what just happened. We'd somehow drawn at Brisbane by getting 500 for one, and then we'd won in Adelaide, and it felt like, shit, we're actually going to do this. And English teams don't win in Australia. We get fucking hammered in Australia, but we actually, we're going to do this. Um, and at that point, it was all rosy and everyone was getting on. It was brilliant. It was an amazing time. Yeah, that's what you dream of being a team team environment when everything's like that, and then like little things you know, open up for you. I remember, I remember, gosh, I remember it like it was yesterday. Us losing that test match, trying to hang on, seeing the rain clouds starting to like blow in, and like, come on, yeah. we just need it. We just need to hang on for a little bit longer, and then just about it seemed like as soon as the test match finished, it absolutely bucketed down, which would have, <laughs> yeah, which would have got it, it would have drawn the game because the train dreams are underneath the stand. As you know, mm. you can't see the you can't see the pitch from the away dressing room anyway. And we'd been in there for about half an hour, and we had the you know a few beers, and we were all singing. And Paul, I always remember Paul Collin going, "Lads, you will not believe what's happening outside." And we all ran down like the concourse. It's about forty meters down, and like, looked out, and it was just it was like a monsoon. Mm. And we couldn't believe it. We could, <laughs> none of us had even figured that rain was going to come in that day. We just thought, well, this is the day we can win a test match. And then, shit, the pad. <laughs> How lucky was that that we actually got the game in? It was, it was amazing. Yeah, it was a great time for you guys, not so much for us. <laughs> um, you, <laughs> you had so many incredible highlights throughout your career. Is there one uh, that really stands out to you the most? I had one year... Um, and it started off, and this will sound all schmaltzy and stuff, I had a, a period from, um, after that, we went to South Africa. And just after, so I had an amazing tour in South Africa, where, again, I didn't expect to do a great deal with the ball, but I got um, two fifers in the first two games. I got 85. This is the closest I got to 100. I'm going to t- talk you through this story, because it still kills me. <laughs> We're playing at Durian, <laughs> and Jimmy Anderson came into bat at number 10, and you know Jimmy's no batsman, and he didn't. Yeah. Jimmy didn't like quick bowling, but he was he's hard as nails. He would never let on, but he'd come up to me and go, "Oh Christ, get me away from bloody Dale Stone." <laughs> and I said to him, Dale Stone wasn't playing straight, but they had Antini and Morkel and everyone. And I was I was going great guns, and me and Jimmy had a hundred partnership, and I was just teeing off and reverse sweeping all sorts, having the field day. And I got Jimmy to hit a, a lap slog. He's only ever six in Test cricket, and we were laughing and joking. But he got out and I was on 70 and I watched Graham Onions come in at number 11. I, I swear to God, I had never seen Graham Onions bat at all in the nets, in a game. One of those weird things. I just, he walked down and I went, I don't know if he can bat at all, Bunny. And I watched him walking in and he didn't look like he could bat. Honestly, his pads were all like, weren't done up properly and he was walking like a Woody from Toy Story. I thought, oh shit, it's crap. And so... <laughs> So I looked at the scoreboard. I'm going to have to. If I want 100, I'm going to have to get it really quickly. And Harris was bowling, so I went six, 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 and then caught deep mid-wicket. Graham Smith caught me, and I walked off going, "Oh well, live by the sword, die by the sword." That Test match and the next Test match, Graham Onions batted to save the game against Dale Steyn and Morne Morkel. He was he had the best defence I've ever seen him on. No way. <laughs> and I thrown away getting 100 because. <laughs> 
and that still kills me. It still yeah. eats me up. <laughs> well, we can't always get what we what we dream of, but you got close. <laughs> yeah, but, yeah. So in, in that period, I think I had um, I had a really good year in 2011 um, against Pakistan, and look. Just because three of their team went to prison for match fixing, mm. I stand by my results. All right, I still bowl well. <laughs> don't don't worry, because, don't worry. I got yeah. I got that series. We played Pakistan in England just before that yeah. as well, and that was the most wickets I got, and I'm I bowled really well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we, that we played at Lords. Stuart Broad got 175, and this is when Broadie wasn't scared of the ball and he could really bat. He batted beautifully. And I got Pfeiffer. And so we were sat in the changing room afterwards and we've just been told, look, the guys have been done for match fixing, three of them. They're going down. The no ball fiasco and everything. And it, it was Bedlam going off in, in Lords. And there's this emergency meeting in the home changing room between our chairman of our board. And he's going, this is disgusting. We're going to strip Pangas out of cricket and all this. And I was next to Broadley and he just leaned over and went, um, you don't think they'll take our names down off the board, do you? They've only just painted it up. <laughs> <laughs> and thankfully, thankfully they're still there. Yes, absolutely. Agree. Okay, I'm going to start with the lessons that you learned from the technical side side of the game. So from a bowling perspective, was there one specific technical aspect that you that really stands out to you that we you worked really hard to develop? So from that mo- moment on, you knew that if you did that every ball, you're going to be consistently at your best. Yeah, it, it it wasn't quite technical. It was more tactical. Um, mm-hmm. I was sort of self-coached when I grew up. I didn't agree with the way they coach spin bowling in England. I still don't. The way they grip it, the way they <laughs> tell you to run up straight and do that. I don't agree with it. It's why we've not got many good spinners. But it was when I moved to Nottinghamshire, Chris Reed was our heat keeper. And he said to me, look, you're the best spinner in the country. I'm telling you that. But you're not taking as many wickets as you should your line has to change and it's only a couple of inches. You've got to bowl a couple of inches straighter because you're very wide of off stump. You're bowling for like magic balls all the time. And from that moment on, I tried to hit the top of off stump every single ball I bowled, whether it be, if it's turning square, I'll go wide. If it's round the wicket, you know. And that was like the turning point for me. I became a better bowler immediately because I hadn't even thought about it. I wanted to bowl people through the gate or court back pad all the time, the glory wickets. Never even thought that if the ball isn't it in the stumps every ball, you're easy to play for an offspring because the pad can go outside the line. And that was the thing that changed. So from then on, I've, all I ever practiced was hitting the top of off stump. Okay. So so in the in training, for example, from that moment on, like, is that with, did you mainly spot bowl or you bowl a lot in the nets or were you, what, what was the combination there? I bowl very little at batsmen in the nets because okay. the thing about being a finger spinner, and you'll know this, that batsmen do never play finger spinners in the nets or English batsmen or South African batsmen as I used to bowl that would never would never play you in the nets how they'll bat in the middle they will block two balls run down the wicket and smash you out of the nets and everything when they'll never play those shots in the middle and so I was always I was always of the feeling that if you're practicing that for a match fine but I've never seen you do that Trotty I've never seen you do that Belly actually Belly was different I've never seen you do that boy so Cookie Alistair Cook come on you never get on the wicket. <laughs> and so I bowled very rarely at batsmen if I could, but I would bowl at the stumps as often as possible. Just even if it was just the kick there, a man with a, a mitt, and just get the feeling. As soon as I felt comfortable in the surroundings of the ground we were playing at, that was me done. 
I love that because obviously something s- seems so simple can have such a profound impact on on your on yeah. your skill. Um, I want to I want to touch on what you said there around coaching, around um, how England coach spinners, and how then yeah. that's that's a big call to go. You know, I I don't believe yeah. what what you're actually doing and what you're coaching is going to make me make me as good as I want to be. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm quite outspoken on this. I'm quite a big believer in it. Because that's the thing. Like in, in Australia, it's a, it's a big issue as well. A lot of the um, natural talent is coached out of people because they have this cookie cutter approach of, well, this person, if you want to be an off spin, you have to bowl. If, if you want to be a leg spinner, you have to bowl ex- exactly the same as Warney. If you want to be a batsman now, exactly. people are starting to move towards like copying, well, yeah, Steve Smith's the sort of favor of the month the way he bats. Yeah. And that's how everyone coaches. That takes a that takes a lot of balls to be able to actually like have that commitment from a young age. Yeah. Go, you know what? I'm just gonna I'm gonna develop my own skill. Well, I, I, I always say in sort of tongue in cheek way that when we went to India and won, we were quite lucky because t- the two spinners we had didn't bowl in the typical English way. We had Monty Panesai who didn't understand any coaching growing up, and me who didn't listen to any coaching growing up because I was bullshit. Mm. And it is a jokey way of saying it, but it's kind of true. The amount of times. I've I've seen the level four spin section or whatever, how you're supposed to bowl off spin. It's all about straight lines and doing this and doing that. It is absolutely wrong, I think, and the way they hold the ball. And they're now saying that there's not one way to hold the ball and they'll, cope, they'll work with you. You should hold the ball, whatever makes the ball spin as violently out of your hand as possible and dip and drift. That's how you hold a cricket ball. When I grew up, the way to coach it was holding it as if you're opening the doorknob. You didn't get any spin and drift and dip. So I just, I'd, I'd never agree with it. I never agree with running in a straight line. I thought you, I think you always had to bowl over the back of your shoulder and really get round like an old fashioned away swinger. Mm. It's like, it's all about getting shape on the ball. So, but I, I'm quite outspoken about this in England. But how they've not come forward and asked me to work with their spinners is beyond me because we should you should always tap into the talent you've got. But they won't they won't ask me to do it because they want someone who, you know, has done level four coaching and done this and that. And I've not done it. So yeah, tell so, yeah. the Aussies, I'll come and work with Gary. I'll get yeah. I'll get into better standards. This is actually a big bugbear of mine as well. Because the thing that I've seen is so many coaches doing all these coaching levels, and I'll talk from Australian perspective, doing all these coaching levels and then actually don't then go go into coaching the, the natural skill and talent out of all the, the cricketers or a lot of yeah. the cricketers that we have. And again, yeah. like how in the world they wouldn't like English cricket and other parts around the world would not tap into like you, who's one of the greatest and highly skilled finger spinners that's ever been in the world. I, don't, I just, I, I don't get that. I just, I just think that while it's there, there seems to be a thing. I don't know if it's the same in Australia, but it's a bit like, if you finish, if you wanted to go into coaching, you always have to serve your time first. You'd have to go to a state. You'd have to do, you might have to do the women's team. You'd have to work your way up. For me, the day you finish playing international cricket, you're the best possible, your position better than you'll ever be to know the players you're playing against, the game actually how it is. That's when you're most useful. People could look like Jimmy Anderson, when he finishes bowling, if England don't make him bowling coach on the spot, say so you're not going anywhere, you just travel around because he knows more about bowling than anyone I've ever known. Mm. I mean, it's a miserable bugger, don't get me wrong, but he's a brilliant <laughs> bowler. If they don't make him the bowling coach on the spot, they'll be stupid, but I bet they don't do it. I bet they make him go off and coach Lancashire seconds for three years and 
the England women B team for a while just to get his while he gets his badges from Loughborough. Yeah, exactly. And these level three, level four, whatever they are, like in Australia, it's the same. You have to, unless you, if you if you want to coach, you've got to tick all those boxes. And yeah. like, well, I, I like I feel with my experience and the people I've incredible people I've been around as well, and what I've learned, like. You can't you can't get taught that and you can't get taught that in a level three or level four. No, of course you can't. <laughs> anyway, no. we'll um we'll ke- <laughs> we'll keep championing that because I fully agree, mate. I, I fully agree. We're on the exact same page with that. Okay, you you scored a lot of lower crucial lower order runs as you talked about. You definitely scored some ones in Ashes Test. Goodness me, that that killed us at times. <laughs> um, so <laughs> so from a batting perspective, was there one or two technical components that you worked on to to get the best out of yourself? Um, no, and it's, it's actually when I when I joke about not getting 100, being a bugbear, my major bugbear is that I'd let my batting slide because as a young kid, I was a batsman. I used to open mm. the batting. Mm. And at under-19 level, I played, I batted number four for England and stuff. And so I was actually a, bat, a batter, but I sacrificed that because I wanted to be the best possible bowler I could. Mm. And I took the, I really did take the easy option out because, because I was naturally aggressive when I batted it. I use the excuse of when I go in, I've either got to up the ante to get our team on top or I've got to try and wrestle the initiative back from the opposition by teeing off. I basically talked my way out of ever having to play defensively because I enjoyed batting. I had a little man on my left shoulder saying, imagine if you hit this ball for six. Imagine what would happen if like the ball before two, you ran down the wicket now. This would be so funny. And I'd like egg myself on. I can never stop it happening. <laughs> but that was my way of enjoying. But I just, I'm just going to enjoy it because my lower order runs, they're vital. And I'll, I'll score them if I'm teeing off. Mm-hmm. If I try and bat sensibly and try and be normal and get out, I will never forgive myself. And yeah, it, it was a cop out on my behalf, really. It was because I look back, I should have scored a lot more runs than I did. And it was just, it was, I'd always just laugh about it and say, well, I'm averaging. 30, you know, I'm, I'm in for me bowling. Ha, ha, ha. But mm. looking back, I could have easily, I could have batted five or six if I'd put my mind to it. Um, but I let it slide. And that's that's a bit embarrassing when I look back at that, to be honest. I wouldn't say that's definitely not embarrassing because you've got to, to, to be the best at, at something. You've definitely, you've got, you've got to, you've got to wait, like marry up your time at training in that as well. Um, there's there's no question. And, and also um, combining that with your fielding. But I find that, like, again, it's around the, the mental aspect of, of your batting. Like, when you're at your best, obviously, it was just like, I'm taking the game on. I'm, yeah. I'm trying to wrestle, wrestle the initiative or I'm actually, you know, building momentum and getting it, getting yeah. it going forward. Um, it, it was always, it was my way, again, of always taking the pressure off myself. Mm. Like, come on, you're in it for a while. When I tried to bat sensibly in India a couple of times, I remember getting a 50 in Nagpur. And honestly, I thought I was sending myself to sleep. I thought this is people won't be watching this. This will be disgustingly slowly slow. And I got fifty off about seventy balls, and it felt embarrassing. I was like walked up, going, "Oh my god, that was rubbish!" And people were looking at me a bit strangely. I just didn't have this, the patience or the temperament. And, I, and that's the thing I never worked on. I could never be bothered. I thought, you know what? I admire Alistair Cook because he can bat for a day and a half and send everyone to sleep, but he'll win the game for you. It's not, it's not my cup of tea. I just can't. It's not me. And I didn't, I could have, I think any player can work on aspects that they're weaker, 
but I didn't bother. I just thought I, I made that my excuse. I, that's not my game. Yeah, that one to do. Which that's that's the embarrassing. When I look back, I think, yeah, probably should have done a bit more. I probably should have worked out how to face ninety-five mile an hour left arm bouncers from my last series in, uh, <laughs> in Australia. I think we all should have done because we didn't have a fucking clue what we were doing. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no one would. <laughs> that was nasty. <laughs> Jeez, he had, he had a big point to prove, Mitch. And goodness oh, me, my word. that is my. I, I love an under. I asked Bradley. I love an underdog. Mm. Love an underdog story. I'm the biggest Ricky Bobby fan. Mm. <laughs> when Mitch came back from from being sort of sang on and off the field in 2010 at Sydney when he got out first ball, mm. you know, you're bowling, you're shite, whatever. To come back to do that a few years later, you've got to take your hat off to him. It's one of the best, one of the best things I've ever seen, I reckon, from yeah. a human point of view. I love yeah. him for it. Yeah, no, I completely agree. Yeah, he's a special man. My word, he was quick. <laughs> <laughs> it's brilliant to be in the slips, not facing it. <laughs> there was a ball at Adelaide, and it was the slowest wicket we played on. There was one ball that it hit my handle on my back, and I can't remember doing anything. I can't remember like lifting my hands, coming, putting the back. How it hit my handle, I'll never know. I might as well have stood there, eyes wide, when it smashed me in the face, and so just. Pure reaction, and it dropped on the floor. And I remember trying to, like, casually, yeah, look like you meant that. And, and the replay, I was just going, Jesus Christ. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. Yeah. yeah, super good to be on the right side. Uh, Swanee, throughout your career, you bowled so many balls in games, let alone the number of balls that you bowled um, to have developed the amazing skills that you, that you had. So what were the lessons that you learned throughout your career to manage your body as well as you could to be able to stay on the park and continue to execute your skill over and over again? Yeah, I was quite lucky in the fact that I fielded slip for one. Um, that was something I definitely did work on so I could stay in there. Um, and my body, I had a bad back as a kid um, to spondylolisthesis. So I had a couple of stress fractures as a kid. So I knew how to look after my back. Okay. I knew how to do a lot of core training and really know any little hot spot and signal that back trouble was pending, I could get on top of it with icing and physio and stuff like that. So the one thing I could never control was my elbow because that was um, willy because I bowled with a straight arm. I had <laughs> an injury that a lot of baseball pitchers get where you get bone that grows and then shatters and, and you have to have it all removed. And I had like five operations in the end. That was something I could never get on top of. Um, and it's why I had to finish in there because two or three of the bits were inside the nerve. And so my last series, in fact, the last two series, three balls out of six. I, you know the ball I bought to Chris Rogers at Lords? Yeah. They'll be they slipped out of my yeah, hand and hit him on the ball. Yeah. The worst bit of cricket. I didn't feel that ball come out of my hand at all. It was like, shit. It got to the point where I, I couldn't feel my hand properly. Well, bowling, like three or four balls out of six, it'd be more luck than judgment where it was going. My last series, my last game in Perth, mm. my last over that you hit me for about four sixes. It was like honestly, it was like a blessing in disguise that you did that because C Cookie wouldn't take me off. Mm. It's like you've got to keep, I've got no one else to bowl. And I said, like, I can't feel my hand. I cannot feel where I don't know where the ball's going, and it was just floating out. Mm. And I was like, this is it. So that was the one thing. If I could go back, the the guy used to do the surgery on me in America, Sean O'Driscoll. Yeah, Rochester, Minnesota. He said, um, so that what it was, I've got two or three of these, they're called osteophytes, and they've gone into the nerve. 
He said he can tr- attempt to go in and fetch them out. He says, I'll give you the odds. I'll give you a one in 10 chance of keeping your hand, movement in your hand. If I get them and don't nick the nerve whatsoever, you could have uh, the rest of your life with no problems whatsoever. Uh, and the only person who'd taken up these odds before was a baseball pitcher, a left-handed pitcher who's on $15 million a year. He only played one year and it was a career. So he said, yeah, go for it. And he's never pitching. He can't feel his hands. So I was like, I don't really, I can't really go for that. So all these, in, all these elbow, that was the one thing I could just never get on top of. Um, which again is strange because I didn't chuck a deuce right. If I, if I bowled a deuce right and, and chucked it, I could understand it. But I bowled with a straight arm all my life. I've still got a bad elbow injury. That pisses me off. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> it was because that's the thing. Your arm was dead straight. That's that's um, it's amazing how I suppose the, the human body is is built and what you what you try and push it to the limits to do. Yeah. And then for whatever reason, it's just sometimes it just doesn't doesn't agree. Even with you know, build, building it up and and working through your workloads and yeah. um, trying to manage it as well as you can. Um, I, I didn't yeah. I didn't know that. That's wow. The first time my elbow ever went. So. I'd, I'd had aches and pains forever playing like from about the age of 23, 24. And the first time I got five wickets in a test match in Antigua, I woke up the next day and my arm was stuck in like a 90 degrees. It, I couldn't move it either way. And I bowled in the second innings without being able to do my twirly thing. Yeah. So with no rhythm <clears throat> and not being able to straighten my arm at all. It's like my whole, my body had waited until it had got five wickets in test cricket and then got oh, thank God, we can relax now. Right, he's injured. It was really weird. And that was when I had my first elbow operation. And then I ended up having like four after that. But it was just Jeez. one of those things. But again, I always think that I got away with it. I, I had five years. After my first up, the doc said, you could have five minutes or five years with your elbow. I hope it's five years. And it was. So I got lucky, really. Yeah, gosh. I'd like to know about the mental side of that. Because one... Were you bowling in in pain, or was it more just you couldn't have like couldn't feel your hand like at certain times because we had a- it was never pain. It was like okay. it was I cannot feel my hand. So and it, it, it was only right at the end of my career. So it was a few balls I bowled at Old Trafford in a Test match, um, just in that the summer before, and then the second innings at the Oval which is when I got you out, caught long on, you would hit one into the wind. I thought, oh, that'd be another six. And I just remember going, oh, you're kidding me, mate. And the wind blew it back. I <laughs> <laughs> got a good piece of that as well. But that, that should have been, that should have been the last ball of bowling test cricket, really. That should have been it because mm. that second area, I couldn't feel, it was just, I was bowling four arm balls and over just trying to, because I didn't know where, didn't have any feeling or whatever. I should have said to myself there, look, you've, you've screwed it, give it up. But I, th- I was always like, uh, live by the sword, die by the sword, it'll be all right on the night, and thought it'll be fine. Six weeks off, it'll be fine in Australia. But it won't. So. How did you go How did you go with that from a mental perspective to try and to work through that and know that that was going to be like your body, it's not, not your mind yeah. and your skills, you're going to be your body that was the reason why you had to stop playing? Because, oh, oh, gosh. That was, it was tough. hard. That was the hardest thing for me because it was almost like I'd always convinced myself and I'd always double bluff myself that I wasn't nervous, that, you know, that I was fine. That, yeah, slip catching's a massive one for me because that's the mentally strongest thing I think you have to do in test cricket. 
to believe you're never going to drop a catch with all that pressure. And so I, I felt mentally strong because of that. So when I got to the point where I couldn't convince myself anymore, I couldn't say it'll be fine tomorrow because I couldn't land the thing where I wanted it to. So it was like, when it becomes hope rather than expectation, that's the time to, and that was what it got for me. I was hoping the ball would land where I wanted it to rather than being in control of it. So that was, that was hard, actually. It was the mm. first time I just thought, I felt completely like hollow and like, I don't want to be doing this. Can't. Yeah. It's just too hard. Yeah, that's tough, mate. Jeez. What you talked there, you just mentioned there about the men- mental side of the game. And that's one thing that I'm absolutely fascinated in because I certainly never, I, I definitely didn't master it whatsoever um, while, while I was playing, especially international cricket. And a, and a couple of things. One, you talked about slips catching about like to be, you have to be ment- like very mentally tough to be able to shut out the noise, to be able to just, <laughs> because there's so much riding on every ball and every ball that yeah. potentially comes your way. Talk to me about how the, the mental process and mental skills process you work through to be able to shut that out, to be able to be as good a slips catcher as, as you were. So my, my way of thinking was, um, and, and slip catching was different because that was something I, I worked on every day and I would, I'd practice an awful lot of that compared to my bowling. I'd over over practice in, in the slips because I it, I wanted to say so if we did twenty catches each in slip catching practice I wouldn't drop any at all and no matter how hard they were I'd see it well I could react well I could move well and I wouldn't drop them so I convinced myself if I can catch all of them and I'd make sure they were harder then there's no way I can drop it in the game but the trick is I mean the hard thing like you say once you've actually got your wires on rather than your training gear and the, the ashes have started and the TV cameras and everything and the high pressure, if you let that pressure get in your head, then it's a different game. You're back to square one. So I always used to, uh, I came up with this trick and I got really lucky, I think, in my first ever over bowling in test cricket. And it was in Chennai. And like before my first ball, I was, my knees were bent, the ball felt too light. I bowled a horrible long up and got hit for four by Gambier. And I, I've always been an optimist and I laughed to myself on the way back to my mark. So well, at least it didn't go for six. And then I got him out of the third ball. He just padded up to one that went straight on and he was out LB. So I've got a wicket in my first over test cricket. So I'm feeling amazing. And Raul Dravid came out to bat. Now, Raul Dravid, time I played him before, was the best player I'd ever seen or ever bowled at. In a county game, no one watching, no pressure. Toyed with the field, toyed with the bowlers. Unbelievable. He walked in at Chennai with eyes like dustbin lids, shitting bricks. You could tell straight away he just, he was playing the situation rather than the bowler and he got out second ball. So I got two wickets in my first over. One of them was Raul Dravid, who played, it, was, it wasn't a ball that should have got him out, put it that way. And I remember thinking to myself, right, from this moment on, I'm never going to play the situation. I'm going to pretend it's a club cricket game with my mates when I'm 15 years old, when I'm the best player by miles, and I know it, and I always get man of the match. I'm going to imagine that every time I play. And so I'd stand there, when I'd stand there smiling, laughing, that's what I was trying to envisage all the time. I'm 15 years old, it's a club game. And it works. It really does. It takes all the pressure off. I mean, obviously, sometimes it doesn't work. But in a just you against the batsman, if you think that, just think, well, I'm going to get you out. 
I know how I'm going to get you out because it's amazing how that took all the pressure away. So that was the moment when you discovered that. Was there anyone who was talking to you about that in the lead up to that? Or you just worked that out yourself and realized, and then realized that that really worked for me? It was stood there and then. I remember saying to Jimmy Anders that night, he said, it's just like club cricket. If you imagine it, like club cricket. And him just turning around and taking a piss and, well, you're just a club spinner who got lucky, basically. So, yeah, go for it. But he was, I just thought, you know, you're dead right. That is amazingly powerful because that's the one thing that I wish that I let myself go like that to be able to like have that, have that, um, that mindset to go, to just let myself go. I put, I used to put so much pressure because for me, the results and the outcome was, it just meant so much to me that I suffocated, I suffocated my performance and my skill that I had because I was so worried about failing or, or making a mistake. Whereas to be able to actually have that mindset, which is the, which is you at your absolute best and just keep reinforcing that every every ball and every moment that you're playing, that's when you're able to access all of the skills and get mentally, get out of your own way to be able to just access all the skills you've got. Wow, that's incredible. When you think about it, when you played like grey cricket when you were younger, and say you were not in great nick or whatever, you wouldn't worry about it because you'd back your, your ability to just back your way through it and get 100 and like, yeah, you know, I'm playing for the Blues next week. This is almost like a net for me. I do the same as that. I, I always thought, you know, if you're playing a close, I always had this thing about a close game of cricket. So English club, club cricket when you're growing up, 50 overs a week, and you get to the end, so many games where you'd need five wickets in the last 15 overs, and you'd get those wickets, and you'd be bowling, and you wouldn't even think about being hit for four. or being, All you'd think about is getting the bloke out. How am I going to get him out? And because that's all you're thinking about, you didn't, I didn't bowl a single bad ball. And then I realised there's two different ways of bowling. There's one thinking, how am I going to get you out? You know, and then the ball takes care of itself. And the other one is, is my action right? Am I doing this? Am I doing that? And then you never get it right. And so that was the same thing. I'm playing club cricket. All I'm thinking about is getting them out. And then whatever happens then, I'm in the best possible place to you know, perform, to rely on my skills. It's unbelievable that you worked that out such an well, at the early start of your of that um, of your career or test career especially because that is so unbelievably powerful, mate. Like not many, to be totally honest with you, not a lot of people, even that I talk to on um, lessons learned with the greats, have really defined it as simply as that. Like they ended up, you know, having to work through in the greatest players, some of the greatest players of all time. You know, that to work through different ways that work for them. But I, I often wonder whether. Got really lucky because I was 28 when that happened because I had that gap. Mm. So maybe I'd gone sort of eight years of playing county cricket and subconsciously learned this. I don't know. So maybe it, it came to me more than it just mm. it would a youngster. Because I, I look, because I look back at the times that I had some great, great periods um, in my career, and even like around that period of 2009 to 2012, because I had. Like because I had a lot of injuries leading up to that, I thought like my dream of being able to play for Australia and, and do really well for Australia was was gone around 2006, 2007 when I just kept getting injured. And then once I sort of burst through, I got the opportunity to open the batting in um, into that 2009 Ashes series. I was more in, I was in that mindset. It's like, I can't believe I'm doing this. I thought it was done. So I'm just going to go out and enjoy myself. Yeah. But it was because of that situation, those circumstances that sort of got me to that stage. 
um, instead of actually yeah. doing it yourself, <laughs> actually going, you know what, this is a, I know this is how I play at my best. And that's why, so after the period of time, like 2012, when things started to, I had a, I missed out a few times then because my default was going back into don't get out, you know, you got to score runs today, all that sort of thing. And that sort of freedom left me. I didn't know exactly what to go back to. So yes. until, until I fully you know, educated myself more so around the mental skills, which is that's what you're trying to chase is the freedom in your mind to be able to just access all your skills. What you're saying is yeah. like you're a you know, 16 year old club cricketer who's just in there and you feel you're bit that much better than everyone else. And you're just there to take wickets and, and dominate. Yeah. And that's so powerful, mate. Yeah. Gosh, well, there's, that's yeah. the reasons why all the things that you achieved, you're able to do it. Yep. All the power to you, mate. I just want to go back to one thing just from a skill perspective, because there's one ball for me that I found absolutely fascinating and especially watching you bowl to left-handers. And that was the ball that, that went, that went straight on. Obviously that for you was a ball that gosh, was so got you so many wickets and either way, whether there's a ball coming in and getting out bowled or LB or everyone was playing for that ball. And then you get them out caught slip (laughs) because it's actually turned. Talk to me about the technical side of that ball. Um, Was that something that you, you worked on developed or was it more a little bit more of natural variation? That was a hundred percent down to an Australian and I got a name check, Ashley Mallet. So when I went on the, um, the national cricket Academy, uh, we were in Henley beach First time England went over there and Rod Marsh was in charge. Um, bless Rod. If you're there, Rod, I love you. He didn't love me for a long time. We're mates now. Um, but Ashley Mallet came to work with the spinners one day and he said, um, I've got this ball, it's called the square spinner. And all it is, it's, um, it's, so it looks very much like a normal spinner, but at the last minute you sort of change the, the pivot, the angle of the wrist and you sort of underspin it. So it goes down like, I used to call it a UFO ball because it used to go down like a flying saucer. But it looked like a, an off spinner. If, you, if I bowled it properly, I could, I could bowl it without virtually no a visible change. And it was such a powerful ball for me for left-handers because DRS had come in as well. So people couldn't just plonk and let it hit them on the pad. Mm. So no, it, it was very much, it was, it was the ball that I was most proud of. And I've got to thank Ash for it. I could just pick it up straight away when he showed me. But this is going back to England. I got Marcus North out with it at Lords in um, in the Ashes in 2009. Simon Hughes, who was working on TV as the bowl, the bowlologist or whatever, mm-hmm. our, <laughs> the bowl doctor. He had me out and live on cameras the next day, saying, oh, "I've I've looked at all the replays. That was a fluke, wasn't it? What you did to Marcus North." I went, no, 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 it was, it was a genuine ball. He goes, no, it wasn't. That was natural variation. And so I had to get the ball and prove it and bowl two spinners and then bowl this one that went straight on to prove to someone in slow motion, the sky, that I was pissed off as well. I was thinking I've not been given credit for that ball. But knowing Snork as well as I do, he, he said to me after, he goes, mate, I didn't even pick that. You always give me out with that ball. So, and, and Mike Hussey, who's a really good mate of mine, one of the best players I've bowled at. Mm. When we played at Northampton, he used to like, always think it was an arm ball. He'd always think I'd bowl an arm ball and it would turn. And so I knew then that if he's like 50 50 about what I'm bowling, then it's got to be a good ball. But it's my favorite ball to a lefty, absolutely yeah. favorite ball. Gosh, so was that's, there was more of the angle of your wrist was at a release point. That was the only thing that was slightly different. So, so right at the top, just before you let go, as yep. you're going over, you sort of 
come under at the last minute. Right. And it was, it, it, so the ball, I mean, I can still do it now easily. It's, mm. it's a very natural thing to do. And a, a lot of left arm spinners who don't spin the ball very much are very dangerous players, mm. especially in T20, because the odd one will grip, but then mm. when they come on. So it's, it's the same thing as that, but because I turn the ball quite a lot, mm. it was a more dangerous weapon for me. So, like I say, I, I bowl with a straight arm, so I couldn't bowl a deucer. So it was my deucer. So, such a weapon. And look, I because I don't know the, the intricate details of, of off spin. Um, and the technical side of things, especially like when I, when I watch it, when I look at it, and that's why I asked, is it natural variation? Because I, I didn't really see a difference. Like facing you, I, I thought it was mainly more, yeah, more like may, maybe a bit more of an arm ball because something was slightly different, but I didn't know exactly what it was. Yeah, but I suppose I'm not a left-hander, so the ball wasn't just coming into the stumps. Yeah, it was hardest to get right to right-handed because it, the only way you're trying to get them out is caught slip, sort of get it to go across. So mm. I, I tend to save it a lot. I didn't bowl it a great deal at right-handers. Yeah. But yeah. I left it. As soon as I was around the wicket, I thought, oh. I, I used to love it. I'd try and get, if there was a right and left drawn strike, I would happily concede that I'd bowl one that could be turned off the hip to the right-hander so I could bowl at the lefty. Okay. So going back to the coaching side of things, are there many off-spinners out there who know that and have developed that exact skill, finger spinners? I, I don't know anyone in England. I, I was never taught that in England. I'd, I'd never heard of that until I'd gone. I'd probably played 60 first class games in England mm. and never heard of that ball. Ashley Mallet taught me in two minutes. But I'd, I'd happily teach that to any offspinners in England, but I'm, I've never been asked to share my wisdom with any of them. That is absolutely ridiculous. Okay, so there are there's a number of people who do listen to this to this pod to my podcast. Um, so any of the English ECB people out there. Do yourself a favour, yeah. and gosh, because that that was one of the biggest weapons in world cricket. <laughs> not 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 just not obviously for you, but for everyone. It's absolutely ridiculous. Come on, I'll tell you why I don't think this will work. So Strauss is one of my best mates. Yeah, right. That was my skip yeah. when he was made head. <laughs> this still makes me laugh. When he was made head of the ECB, he phoned me up one day. I was with my wife in the car, and she knew I was grumpy. She knew I wanted to get in and help the coaching. And he said, um, "Now, Swanee." Um, Okay, let's talk about this off-spin position for England. And I went, about fucking time, Strauss. Yeah. Went, oh, no, no, no. How do you think Sakhle Mushtaq would be as a coach? Oh, my God. <laughs> and so I just went, I thought he was taking the mickey at first. And I went, mm. mate, it'd be awesome. It's Saki. Of course it'd be great. He goes, cheers, old boy. See you soon. We put the phone down. <laughs> I was gutted, honestly, because yeah. I thought it was just a joke. I thought he was just spoofing me. And they read in the paper the next week that Sakhalin Mushtaq was the new spin coach. I was gutted. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> and because as, the, the one thing that you said there as well is, is part of human nature is passing on your wisdom to the, to the next generations and helping people. That's part of, yeah. that's part of what yeah. hum, humans are, like you know, normal human beings are. They want to they help people. Um, yeah. And it's absolutely ridiculous, untapped resource. Yeah, well, gosh. Fingers crossed, mate, because because young people need this information. Even if it, even if one little thing that you can give someone makes their life easier, makes their life better, because you've given them one tip. Yeah, that is, that is so powerful. So well, when I look at the, the England team now, should be better than the England team that I played in in two thousand nine mm. with the with the people they've got in that team mm. with like Root, Stokes, Archer and everything. Arguably that's better than even like Strauss, Cook, Peterson and Anderson. Mm. And yet they're nowhere near the test team 
because and one of the main reasons they haven't got a spin bowler and you need a top spinner to win test match cricket yeah. and England just they pay lip service to it they're just they're going to India this winter they're going to get hammered because they haven't got a spinner and the Indians are just going to spin the living daylights out of them common sense will prevail at some stage hopefully it's yeah, before before yeah. too late, mate. The media can provide a lot of different challenges at times, um, yeah. especially the Aussie and English press who love the tabloid side of things, especially. <laughs> um, so, <laughs> so looking back now, um, would you have approached the media in a different way when you were playing? No, I wouldn't because um, I always approached them in exactly the way that I wanted to. Hmm. So our press liaison officer, and she was Riyadh, great girl, but we used to walk towards, if I ever was being interviewed, we'd walk towards and she'd say, because um, a lot of people don't know how stage managed those press conferences are. Ugh. Like, by the public. Very, yeah. So, you know, like, you're going to be asked these questions. This is how you're going to answer them. And I used to say to her, Rianne, don't panic. I'm not going to get you into trouble. I don't want to get myself into trouble, but I'm not going to do anything you tell me. Yet. I'm going to have a laugh for this. I always remember my first Ashes Test match at Cardiff, <laughs> I'd only played like four test matches at the time and I was averaging, I think, 58 in test cricket because I'd only got 120 runs, but I'd only been out twice. Mm. And I got 47 in the first innings and they asked me to do the press conference and so I sat there before I went in that had everyone's average from both teams down. I was the highest average out of any of the two teams. So I went, well... Obviously, I don't want to talk about my bowling. I want to talk about myself as the number one batsman in the world at the minute and having a better average than any of the Australians, Clark, Pontin, <laughs> as a proper piss take. And then everyone laughing. i never forget walking out to bat <laughs> in the second innings and Pontin was at a silly point. And he just went, you think you're the fucking best player of the two teams, do you, mate? <laughs> 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 I just said to like Richard, I didn't even read. <laughs> because anyone who, I mean, you know what it's like, anyone who reads those papers and believes what they're reading, mm. we're lucky because we've been in situations that you then read about and go, that didn't happen. Mm. That's a, But no, I, I was quite happy with how I approached them because it was always with a tongue in cheek. They have, it's a symbiotic relationship. They have to be there. We have, we have to use them. So I don't agree with getting shitty with them like a lot of the English players did. Mm. I just think, you know, let them do their job. Again, that perspective is incredibly powerful as well because if you do get caught up in, and I certainly did it a number of times, um, especially yeah, for the early part of my career um, up until probably I was 30, yeah, you said I didn't read it, but my only way of sort of staying away from it affecting me was not reading it. Um, because yeah. because I used to get caught up in it, and I felt like I was always you know, I'd go into a press conference, and because I didn't have your mindset around just yeah. have have some fun with it, they got to do their job. I was very guarded, and I was like thought that they were always trying to you know trip me up and expose me and that sort of thing. One thing they used to do that I found very helpful actually, if I'd had a bad day, um, I'd go and read about it. I, I, I would read about it if I see what people were writing anyway, but. If I had a bad day, I'd go and read about it because there was nothing that anyone could put that made you feel worse than you already did. The fact that you've let, you feel like you've let yourself down, your family down, your country down, you feel the absolute pits, don't you? Mm. So I'd read it and go, well, if that's as bad as they can possibly... And it was like catharsis. Well, that's done now. Mm. I feel great and I'd just move on. So I, 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 never, I never treated them as the enemy. Because they're not, I mean, I like a lot of the English press guys. Mm. There's one or two of them who are just truly weird human beings. But 
they're they're a good they're a good bunch of guys at the end of the day. Yeah, and and most, in the end, yeah, and most of them, and they all love cricket as well. Like a majority of them, they exactly. absolutely love the game. They've got a you know, they've got that deep deep joy of the game. But that's a different perspective. I that I find that really interesting because for me, I felt like if I knew I'd had a bad day. If I started yeah. to re- if I started to read things as well and people like yeah. the media nailing me, I'd dig even a deeper hole. I was pretty good at digging yeah. holes at times, and I'd dig a deeper yeah. hole and find it harder to be able to get out of it. <laughs> but for you to be able to actually do it, it felt like okay, well, it can't get any worse than that. And I know I didn't have a great day, and it's all up from there. Jeez. Good on you, mate. That's <laughs> it's a great perspective. The, the only pe- the people who did though, my mum and dad. The amount of times my mum and dad would start saying, "Well, I read in the paper," and I go, "Stop." Mm. Stop it right now. I've told you about this, mum. All right, sorry, 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 sorry. <laughs> yeah, and as you said, like, it's not, there's so many times where the situation that happened and you're in the middle of it and then what you read is like, oh, they've got that absolutely wrong and then the general public believe what's written because all the facts, <laughs> that's that's how it is. Okay, this is going to get into other aspects away from um, a life away from cricket. And I believe this is one of the most important life skills that most of us don't get much education on throughout our lives. Um, I certain, I certainly didn't. Um, but managing investing our money as well as possible, I believe is integral to making the most of what we've got. Yeah. So looking back from where you are now, from what you've earned throughout your, throughout your life so far, would you have done diff- things differently from a, like an investment or wealth generation point of view? Yes, absolutely. Because I am honestly, I'm like, I might as well have the words mug tattooed across my forehead. <laughs> I, I, I basically, I'm, I must have given away. You know, all all of my ventures into stocks and shares have never been on sound financial planning and a lot of market research. It's been on, you know, the advice of a mate or a bloke down the pub saying it. So I, I realised a long time ago that I do not, I am not financially savvy. I never claimed to be business savvy. I've got good ideas, but I'll let other people take care of it. So the best thing I ever did was let other people take care of it for me. Yeah. Okay. Trustworthy people with actual, yeah. you know, <laughs> actual financial advisors and stuff. But no, I mean, I, I invested quite a lot in that Crick HQ. Oh, you did? Um, okay. Yeah. Because it was Steve, basically because Stephen Fleming mm. was involved in it. And yeah. Stephen Fleming at that point, Knox's captain, guru of mine, Thought if Flem if Flem says it's all right, then it must be, mm. and that was a big lesson. Like it's not because your mates in it that doesn't make any difference to how a company will actually um, survive or not. Yeah. So no, I, 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 it's not my forte. I once I get money, I spend it too quickly, and so I've now got a good team of people who actually do stuff and invest it wisely, like my wife, because I'm yeah. useless with it. Yeah. Okay. So when, when did you when did you realise that you're that you're useless with that side of things? Was there was there a moment where you're just going? I need to outsource this, and I'm going to try and source someone that I trust. Yeah, it was when I had kids. I thought, okay. right, I need to actually. Yeah, so, so someone can actually do this properly because I'm always of the option that everything's fine, everything will be fine tomorrow. I'll always have work. I'll always have stuff to do. I'll always back myself. There'll always be something around the corner, which is my outlook in life. Mm. Um, but Corona and the lockdown, sort of the world lockdown with no work suddenly came in. It was like, oh, hang on a minute. Mm. Might need you know, to just <laughs> reevaluate one or two things here. Yeah. You don't need three Lamborghinis. You really don't. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, brilliant. Um, okay, I just want, I want to touch on that 
investment with um with Stephen Fleming and just the lessons you learn around there. And you touched on just like around just because he's your mate. And I absolutely I love Flem. He's one of my like yeah. one of my heroes, honestly, from a from a coaching yeah. perspective and leadership perspective. Like he is just the ultimate. I really believe yeah. that. And obviously he's very he's very um he's very entrepreneurial as well, looking at um, getting involved in businesses. But if you had advice for for your like your younger self going into that investment what what would you what would you say to have sort of maybe got a different result yeah weirdly because i'm, I'm very much of the like never regret anything you've done regret things yeah. you don't sort of thing so i'm glad yeah. i did it because yeah. it's got me to the point now where yeah. it's made me realize that even flem didn't know that that was going to go to yeah, some sort of no thing question but it's just it would be just i mean and for any youngsters and it's almost boring to say be more sensible when you're younger when you've when you've got surplus when it's when it's almost you've got more than you need and whatever before you've got a family you never realize how important investing that money in your future is going to be until it's too late so if i could go back then i'd just say stop listening to everybody back yourself with property because property will never see you wrong in this country in england so throw it in houses but there's plenty of time for that. I mean, on the plus side, I've very well insured my life insurance. So my missus bumps me off. Kids are fine. Jeez, <laughs> <laughs> I love your perspective. It's brilliant. <laughs> Even with that. All right. Um, <laughs> one thing that I've realized is that life is all about how well you bounce back from setbacks that life always throws at you. So do you have a saying um, in your life that helps you bounce back quicker from the challenge that life always throws your way? Could have been worse with an F word. Could have been fucking worse. Yeah. That's what I always say. I mean, because it was it was always my way of, of saying that life, grass isn't always green, whatever. Whatever you're doing, you're, if you're lucky enough to be doing your dream, and someone somewhere is jealous of you and wants the job you've got. So just don't lose sight of that. It could be a lot worse, mm-hmm. everything. And and, on, and, the, and the good days, never, I don't agree with living life on an even keel. Not really. I say if you have good days, then enjoy them, celebrate them. Don't be afraid to really sit down and smile to yourself. I used to put my full English, before I went out to bowl, any day for England, I'd be fully kitted up with my cap on and before, with, with the rest of the team just like trotting out. I'd still be in the bathroom, just looking at myself in the mirror, looking at myself with the lions on my chest and on my hat. That's what I wanted as a kid, and now I'm doing it. Look at yourself. Don't take this for granted. You're living your dream. You're playing for England. And I'd stand there looking at myself till it made me smile from ear to ear, and then I'd walk out and I'd try and look every day because that's, that's what we were doing. We were living the dream, weren't we? Gosh, if you just got such a great perspective on life, mate, and that's you know the reason why you've been able to be so successful throughout it. Um, and the one thing that you, the saying that you mentioned before, just around the investment, is um, yeah, not to re- not to regret something is actually regret not doing it because that's how you learn. Um, and I absolutely love that because I, I that's yeah. what I, I I believe is that if you don't, the way that you learn the most is by making mistakes and and when times don't you know don't go exactly to plan, is that's that's where you learn yeah. the most. Um, and then also you don't appreciate when things go well as well if you haven't actually had those down times so and as yeah. you said there make the most of those those great days even those little wins whatever it is you've had a great day you absolutely got to enjoy it you have to absolutely okay you've met and been around some of the most successful people in the world is there one person who has inspired you the most and why 
There's a guy called Matt Hampton who's a rugby player who used to play for Leicester Tigers in England under-21s who was paralysed um, mm. during a scrummage session and he's now quadriplegic. He's in a wheelchair and he's got a book called Engage and Stuart Broad knew him and he brought me this book and I read it and I was... I mean, it's, it's phenomenal. He's on the verge of playing international rugby. All he's ever done is play rugby and now he's in a wheelchair for life. And like he almost dies in the street in Birmingham because his oxygen runs out and the spare tank's not working. And it's like, Jesus Christ. And just seeing what the, where he went from, he's gone from playing England under 20 rugby to lying in State Mandeville Hospital in the dark on his own in traction. Like his life ruined ahead of him. And he's not given up. And he's absolutely done a lot of charity work and shit loads. People that inspire me. Because like I say, it could be... I'm the lucky one. I'm living my dream. People like that, you know, a completely different kind of dream, but they're making the most of it. So, Matt Hampson, unbelievable. And his book's called Engage. If you get the chance Engage. to read it, you definitely should. Certainly will. Gosh, yeah, you can't, you can't imagine someone like that. And that's what you're right. Like, we are so lucky to have lived out, to live our dream because it can be some one slight instance could just take that all away and have taken that all away. I mean, years before I met Matt, my, my inspiration, my hero was Lance Armstrong, but then it turned mm. out that he was juicing all the time. It was <laughs> to me too. Kind of taking it for me a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> I, I read, it was the first time I ever read a book twice. Not about, uh, the not about the bike yeah i read it i read it twice because it inspired me so much i just that got like i think i read it when i was like 16 or 17 and it was like oh that is just if he can do it gosh well why why, why can't i push the limits as well Ooh. because you didn't have dr ferrari that's why <laughs> he, he pushed the limits <laughs> he's, the one thing is his charity work that he's done with livestrong certainly created a huge you know, a, it's amazing it was viral and was it was incredible what he's able to do, but yeah, it's a tiny bit. Yeah, he's a tiny little bit tarnished. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, okay, and I know you. I know you love reading as as I do, and I love reading and learning and being inspired. Um, so, can yeah. you give me a couple of other books um, apart from Engage, the best books that you've read and have had the most impact on you? Quite a few about the Second World War. Hmm. Um, so, obviously, being in England, it's 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 a major thing, like the Battle of Britain, the you know the the fate of so many being owed to the valor of so few. Those mm. the fighter pilots, and there's one called the Fighter Boys. It's basically the stories of the fighter aces who lived through that, who were up there flying every day, and it is just it's inspiring in a way that they're so they're, they're not blasé about it, and they don't play it down. They say that oh, I thought I was going to die. The ones who survived him were the best were the ones who said, well, I thought I was going to die any minute. So I didn't bother worrying about it. I just went out there and flew. And, and there were some who were very self-effacing and say, I didn't have a fucking clue what I was doing. I just threw my plane around, tried not to get shot and landed. If I saw another plane, I squirted bullets at it. It might have been one of ours, I don't know. It's the most honest and gut-wrenching but incredible stories. <laughs> just called Fighter Boys. Yeah, I love stuff like that, though. Yeah, okay. I'll and this one, yeah, I'll definitely read that. Churchill's Ministry of Ungentlemanly Warfare, which <laughs> is about, basically, <laughs> you know, think about Britain, it's supposed to be slightly batshit crazy and that sort of mad Englishman. 
this is about all the mavericks who worked for Churchill, like coming up with exploding cigars and all stuff like that to send <laughs> to send to Hitler as a chocolate cake with rice with them. With, with a rat inside it who had rabies and stuff like that. And these are genuine plots they had during the war. And oh, I love right. shit like that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> work. They're all crazy. Yeah. They're like Bond and the Spinner. It doesn't work, but we did it anyway. <laughs> Brilliant. I love it. Um, that Fighter Boys, I find that, I find that I'm going to definitely read that because I, um, I'm fascinated by, by war as well. And, you know, growing up in Australia, there's a lot of people who, um, lost their lives in World World One and World War Two um, to give us the freedom that we've got here. But um, and the history of all of that and how it works, like it's so it's so important to know actually you know, the history and where where you know, where we've come from, the freedoms that we have. So and the fighter pilot side of things. Like my dad was in the Air Force and he was um, a um, and a fighter pilot, um, radio technician. So um, I've always been around a little bit growing up. Yeah. Swanee, this really has been incredibly special. We've had you on this episode of Lessons Learned with the Greats. Um, the thing that stands out to me is your perspective on, on life and on, on your cricket and how you just were able to make the most of what you've had and the belief that you had in yourself and, um, and the skills that you developed around that. That really has been something that has stood out to me so much. And um, thank you so much for sharing all of those incredible insights because that's of, gosh, I've learned a lot and I know everyone who listened to this will will learn an incredible amount as well of how to get the best out of themselves. We have lived our lives in a parallel universe in, in so many ways um, and it has been fascinating to be able to just hear the lessons that you've learned throughout, throughout your career and your life. I'm so grateful for you taking the time to share all of these amazing insights with me and everyone who listens to this will be that much richer for digging deeper into the minds of one of the greats of world cricket. Thanks, mate. Mate, it's been an absolute pleasure. Anytime, Wado. For more episodes of Lessons Learned with the Greats, head to t20stars.com forward slash podcast. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.